Hello and welcome to a new episode of Private Equity Talks. I'm Real Deals reporter Jennifer Forrest and in this episode of our podcast we'll be discussing the longevity of ESG reporting and initiatives, especially as we enter a post-pandemic phase. I'm joined today by Sharadia Desgupta, founding partner at Blue Dot Capital and Richard Barrett, Director and Chief Sustainability Officer at Earth Capital. Good morning to you both. Thank you, Jennifer, for having me. Um, I'm the founding partner of Blue Dot Capital. Blue Dot Capital is a boutique sustainable investment consultancy, and we work with investment management firms and support the development of um, ESG capabilities and programs across asset classes. So our clients are traditional asset management firms, alternative investment firms, and wealth management firms. And it's a pleasure to be on your show. Thank you so much. And Richard, do you mind doing the same? Yes, um, and thank you, Jennifer. Um, yeah, I'm Richard Barrett. I'm a Director and Chief Sustainability Officer at Earth Capital. We're a private equity firm focusing on um, investments in the um, sustainable growth equity space. Um, most of the work I do um, is in the sustainable finance and investment space because I'm, I'm also... Um, a non-exec director at Triodos Bank, uh, which is a sustainability-focused bank, and um, a fellow at the Institute of Sustainability Leadership in Cambridge. Um, so I, I, I do a lot of work and research around this area, as well as my work at Earth Capital. Amazing stuff. Um, to get started, I was hoping to speak to you, Richard, first. I was wondering, because of the recent not so recent anymore sfdr regulation it's been around for just shy of six months now mm. um i was wondering if you could talk me through the resources with that reporting um if in the last five six months if you found that there's any strain on those resources if you're struggling to keep up with the reporting requirements or if you know if any of the other kind of players in the market similar to yourselves are struggling or not um yeah, look, it's a, it's a good question and, and a very topical one. I mean, the SFDR regime um, is sort of in, 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 in a stage of consultation stroke introduction. Um, we've looked at it um, and looked at the resourcing that would be required to, to do it. Um, we, we currently don't have any EU domiciled investors, so it's perhaps... Uh, um, an option for us at this stage. Um, but um, I, I think it is quite onerous. And certainly, you know, talking to colleagues in other organisations, um, there's been quite some criticism of it, um, not only from the burdensome nature of it, but, but also, you know, what is it really trying to achieve? I, I suppose if, if, if the exam question was, how do you stop greenwashing? in ESG labelled funds or green labelled funds, then you know, the EU's taxonomy and SFDR does, does a good job in terms of um, you know, certifying what is green. Um, but if the exam question were, how do we get more capital from brown industries flowing into green? And how do we transition the economy to a net zero sustainable footing, then I don't think it does answer that exam question particularly well. In fact, it may actually make it more difficult to do that because of its burdensome nature. 
because it's very black and white in terms of what it what constitutes a green investment, which means that if you're a business that has investments that need to transition, they don't actually sit easily within that um, regime. Um, so I, I actually think it's it's in quite an interesting um, and problematic phase at present. Um, and and um, I'm I, I'm not I'm not sure it's particularly helpful if I'm being brutally honest with you. Do you think that maybe this level two, which is set to come in early to mid next year, is going to be particularly helpful in ironing out those issues? Um, look, potentially, yes. Um, but as we know, I mean, the EU is is not a homogenous um, sort of collection of countries. There are countries and economies in different stages of uh of development even though they are developed countries um some of them have um very different attitudes to different forms of say energy generation and um it's it's going to be quite a hard debate i think politically for them to come up with an agreed list and and you know whilst whilst it may set a standard for being green um is that the problem we're actually trying to solve. I mean, what we're trying to do, I think, is to somehow transition the whole economy to uh, a sustainable footing. And, and I'm not sure um, that the level two reporting will actually help with that particularly either. I don't know what you think, Sharadia. I mean, it's just, a, you know, looking at it from, from stateside, maybe, maybe the view is different, but it, it, it's quite a difficult process. It is, it is. And I love the fact that you are being brutally honest and you're questioning the structural, sort of the, the way it is set up structurally. Yeah. And you're, to your point about, you know, the, the second question of the exam, is this going to aid capital mobilization? I think the jury is still out. Yeah. But even within the limited scope of aiding, you know, disclosures, even if you go back to question number one, I don't think even that has necessarily played out the way the hopes were. You know, yeah. we have looked uh, as consultants, obviously, this has been, you know, this will sound self-serving. We are being asked to help clients with SFDR disclosures, right? Yeah. And as part of that, obviously, we are looking and scanning at disclosures that have already been published. I really don't think uh, comparability was a key tenant of the, or when this process was being developed. I don't think comparability has has been enhanced. They still the disclosure statements. If you look through them, they still tend to be pretty divergent, right? Of course, there are some some common themes that they all touch upon, but it's still divergent. It's still subjective um, because that's how it has been designed. And to yeah. your point, Jennifer, level two. Uh, I mean. We'll see. There has been some delay, which has added to the anxiety of the of the asset management firms, right? Yeah. Um, and as you know, SFDR is not the only disclosure requirement that they have to adhere to. There are others that they have to um, report against, including the UNPRI. And I'm sure you're following that. There has been some delay with that reporting infrastructure, right? Which has caused some some anxiety and heartburn. So, yeah. you know, of course, all of this, uh, you know, enhanced disclosures have been developed with the hope of, of increasing transparency and, and, but 
disclosures can only go so far, right? And adding onerous disclosures on top of each other, I don't know if is necessarily um, the number one sort of catalyzing force needed to move the space forward. So yes, I share Richard's reservations um, about- Actually, you raised the point of PRI. And, and I mean, the problems PRI is having now um, in, I mean, for those who may not know, what they've done is they've effectively rebased their whole right. assessment and reporting process um, starting this year. So those of us who went through a somewhat onerous process, as usual, in, in reporting on their new format, have now been told that we're not going to get our results back on time because there's been a lot of contention and controversy around the nature of reporting. And I actually think it shows us how difficult it is to come up with a uniform set of reporting and disclosure requirements that, that actually suit everybody. And, and that's partly the problem that, that SFDR is now confronting as well. This is, this is not straightforward and it's a non-trivial exercise. It is, it is. And, you know, just imagine, I mean, a firm like Earth Capital versus, you know, some of the more, I hate to use that expression, but some of the more mainstream private equity managers yeah. that we work with, right, who yeah. are not as ESG aware as you are, you know, for some of them, you know, some of the reporting requirements can be onerous. And what adds to it is the confusion around it. That's not helping anybody, yeah. right? Um, so, so, yes, you know, this is, I guess... Um, work in progress. Uh, we'll see how all of this shakes out. Uh, but it's been it's been off to a to a rocky start. Is that I don't know if yeah. that's the right characterization, but maybe I'm being too, I know, uh, too brutal and, and in my judgment, but it's it's definitely been off to an interesting rocky start. Yeah. Well whilst um, the the process of of reporting ESG to governing bodies might be a work in progress. We have at Real Deals been talking a lot recently about private equity's relationship with the public, as I think the pandemic has thrown into question a lot how accountable or the public relationship should be between the general public across Europe, across the world, and private equity. Um, I was wondering if better, it would seem that better private public relations would lead to less greenwashing. But actually, in the last year or two, maybe we maybe we haven't seen that. I wondered if Richard, you could kind of talk us through the kind of relationship between greenwashing and communication through us as a news platform, but also to the general public. Oh, that's a massive subject. Uh, how many hours have we got to uh, discuss this? Look, um, yeah, as we all know, we, we live in a world where we are awash with data and views and opinions and use of social media, both by you know, financial organizations, investors and, and, and others. And, and I think it's really confusing for, for people because um, as others have pointed out, you, know, you can go onto the internet and you can find some perfectly um, curated piece of text, which may tell you a raft of lies with spurious science backing it up, but it looks very credible. So. It's, I think it's really difficult for, um, for the person on the street to look at claims being made by, say, 
large investors or players in the finance sector and, and, and really understand whether or not they are um, valid claims, which is why we are having this push, you know, for certification, for standards of disclosure to try and rule out, you know, sort of greenwash or lying, as others might call it. Um, so on the one hand, I, I think that motivation is a good thing, um, but um, we're getting into a really difficult area here. I mean, a lot of people are calling for standardization of ESG reporting. Well, I, I just think how many years it took to agree general accounting standards, uh, and they vary also from, you know, if you look at the general international gap versus US gap versus UK, whatever, I mean, there are variants around the world. And, and that took decades to develop. I mean, we're seeing how difficult it is to develop standardized ESG data. And, and, and also, there's this other really confusing element, which is the opinion of people the opinion overlay. So you, people can look at the same set of data on a company and yet have a different ESG-based opinion or view of it. I mean, I'm sure you'll agree. And there are some, I, I won't mention the names, but I mean, there are some really successful um, companies out there who really split the jury in terms of their ESG credentials on the same data. So even if you do manage to find data and make it standardized, there's no necessary um, convergence of opinion on, on that data. So I think this is a really difficult space. And, and, it, and yeah, it must be confusing um, for, um, you know, for the person in the street looking at this saying, well, is this a green fund? This fund says it's sustainable. Uh, or, oh, this one says it's responsible. What's the difference? I mean, these are, they're really legitimate questions. And I, I, I spent some time um, a few months ago looking at some um, in, in investment options and for, for, for a friend. And I was stunned by what some mainstream fund managers were claiming were responsible investment. Um, when you actually look under the lid, and see what's in the fund um, to the extent that you can. So, um, so it's a very long-winded answer, but um, look, standardization of, of data, I'm not sure actually helps hugely because we, we, we all react very differently to it. And um, hopefully it will improve over time, certainly in areas like carbon, possibly biodiversity, but, but um, maybe some social indicators are easier to assess than others. But, some of them are so context specific. It's, you know, you, one, one piece of data in one market may have a totally different significance to the same piece of data in another market. So um, that, that's the difficulty. And that's certainly true when you look at water um, as, as, as one obvious example. Um, so this is not easy. Um, Sharadia, coming to you, I was wondering, so also on the topic of greenwashing and public relations and informing the public, um of of what the kind of good ESG practice is and where um firms maybe aren't doing that do you think there should be a kind of I don't want to say kind of calling out 
firms because I, I think that's a hot I think it's a horrible turn but do you think that we maybe should be holding firms that aren't doing that or are misleading the public to account more yes absolutely um and just if you don't mind just to sort of uh, a few things that Richard mentioned can I just add on my views on that um you know I think this, this is a murky landscape and I don't think there is an easy answer to this, right? The standardization of ESG data. Uh, I think a global baseline, what the IFRS is trying to do is, is helpful, right? To have at least a version that is applicable across jurisdictions, right? That has the buy-in and consensus of jurisdiction. That's a good, good target to have and hopefully we'll get there. Um, and, you know, we too grapple with sort of how much is too much? Like, you know, for example, if you are just looking at financial materiality, most firms that we work with are happy to look at SASB because it's, you know, it's something that they understand. It's, 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 it's in the language of, you know, portfolio management, right? That, that, that's the language and that's the underlying sort of text. Um, however, we do know, and I'm sure Richard, you, are, you, you know many, many firms in your, your, your peer group that have, extremely like that have extensive KPI requirements of their portfolio companies, right? Um, is that helpful? You know, you know, making your portfolio companies go through an annual exercise of reporting against hundred odd KPIs, is that necessarily adding value to, to the company's core mission? Not too sure, right? So I think there is this, this will be murky and we will all have to sort of figure out uh, that's, you know, I, I know I'm rambling, I'm not really uh, giving a clear answer, but just to add to Richard's point that this, this is, um, this is uh, a, a difficult space and data without context is meaningless. Yeah. You know, the same data from an emerging market can mean a very, very different thing, uh, right? So, you know, without having that, that, that regional context, it's meaningless. Yes, some things like, you know, probably scope one, your car carbon intensities, those should be standardized. Um, yeah. And, you know, we are at a point where we have enough information to know what a good metric is by which to hold a company accountable for its carbon footprint. I, I don't think there should be any room for ambiguity on that. Um, so yes, uh, and now coming back to your question, Jennifer, about calling out or holding forms, absolutely. And to my point, you know, financial forms, we have all read the IPCC report, uh, it's chilling. Um, financial firms should be held accountable for their financed emission. It's as simple as that. You know, uh, what, are, what are your concrete near-term, long-term plans to manage emissions in your portfolio? That's, that's sort of where the conversation should start in 2021, when you are assessing a firm on what it's doing effectively to you know, uh, in terms of climate change mitigation and addressing climate change, um, you know, operational emission, it's, it's easy for a financial firm, but that's not really where uh, the needle can be moved when it comes to a, to a financial firm. So I think, um, yes, um, definitely uh, requiring financial firms to be more, more forthcoming about their overall portfolio and not just parts of the portfolio that have flattering metrics. Um, and the other thing I would say, since we started off, you know, on a hopeful note, right, um, is even a couple of years ago, 
you know, we would and we would have conversations where we would speak to leadership teams of private equity firms, and we would hear things like, "Oh, but we have a very robust um, corporate philanthropic program, right?" So that sort of was the proxy for for ESG. I think that conflation has now um, completely died. I don't remember any conversation where there was any confusion between having a robust charitable giving versus what you are doing as an investment firm, right? They acknowledge that this is this is something that should be led by the leadership team and led by the investment team and led by the portfolio operations team. So things have progressed. Um, also, if you look at the ESG reports or ESG commentary commentaries coming out of private equity firms, I think there is a lot more substance. Um, you know, there is there is an um, a gradual but certain move towards. Um, data-led disclosures and not just, you know, narratives around, around some of those sort of cherry-picked portfolio companies. So I think, um, I think there is progress, but as Richard and I, we just said, um, this, we are some years away from the point where all private equity firms can have a standardized disclosure, a table format. I think we are some, some years away from that. <laughs> Yeah, and, and there also seems to be this opt-in, doesn't there, on many of the, you know, you, you say, well, what percentage of your assets are covered by these reporting requirements? I mean, that's certainly true of many of the disclosure um, frameworks. And, I mean, it's nice to give people the optionality, but, you know, let's step back. Let's look at the science. Um, there are no opt-outs from a scientific perspective. I mean... The, the, the challenge is clear. We have to actually transition the whole global economy, all parts of it, to a net zero footing by 2050 or earlier, just to give ourselves a 50-50 chance right. of staying below two degrees Celsius. Now, that's what the science says. So, I mean, you know, if, if 11 or 80% of my uh, portfolio are, um, are green, um, that's still the wrong answer because ultimately 100% um, of everything we do has to be. So um, somehow, you know, we've really got to move radically forward, um, which is why I think you're getting this really interesting debate now between ESG integration and reporting your impact. And, mm -hmm. and, and that is also, troublesome as well. Um, sorry, I seem to see, see most things as troublesome, but, um, <laughs> you know, we, um, impact important reporting is, is critical. I mean, you know, we have to actually say, well, this is what we're trying to achieve. These are the positive impacts we're trying to have. And these are the measurements of what we've done over the last 12 months. And we've got, in my view, and we do that at Earth Capital, but you've got to go further than that. I mean, we also use our Earth Dividend Mechanism uh, framework, which looks at 30 indicators of impact, both positive and negative, because I think you've got to be honest, too, about the areas of your portfolio where you're having negative impact. And, and that's one of the criticisms of, of um, I know, the, the, the sort of um, EU taxonomy. I mean, it's very green focused. Um, and, and, you know, we need to look at social and governance issues as well. And, and we need to look at them holistically. Um, and we can't cherry pick where we want to have positive impact and, and gloss over where um, perhaps the story isn't as positive. I mean, so 
that's where we have to move. Um, and, and it's not easy to do, um, but, um, you know, it, it, the science is telling us very clearly um, that we ought to be doing that. So I have no problem with, with calling out companies um, on this. I think um, we're seeing increasing engagement of the biggest emitters globally, like the Climate Action 100 Plus initiative. Um, you know, some of that engagement with those companies is behind closed doors, but but at a certain point, it is made public if they feel that things are are not going well, and I I think we have to be prepared to have that conversation. Um, unfortunately, because um, you know we we all have skin in the game in terms mm -hmm. of the outcome of this. Well, that was going to be my next question: was what where, where do we go from here? Is it a step towards impact? reporting and to what extent should firms be taking that up but also it's important to remember that we're about to step into this post-pandemic phase and yeah. I think as much as we know that like that might include hybrid working and things like that do we really know what happens next when it comes to ESG I think from what we've seen is that there's a little bit of a worry that maybe the adrenaline will fade with ESG reporting. It's been pushed to, to the top of the agenda in the last 18 months, two years, but then we've had the pandemic. So do those two subjects go hand in hand? Um, Sharadia, I was wondering if you could kind of kickstart us off in terms of, is, is there a, adrenaline fading or, is, or do you think it's really picking up? And if so, what, what do you think happens next? Right. I don't see it fading, um, you know, and also just for context here, all of that, all of the reporting that has happened in the United States has happened absent any regulation, right? There is no codified regulation yet in the United States asking any firm or any public listed company to really, um, to really disclose even something as at this point obvious as climate related disclosures that's still under consultation there is of course a debate happening so um so the marketplace has taken the lead um whatever be the motivation um you know if it's if it's being able to meet lp requirements so be it um but the marketplace has definitely taken the lead we don't see um any any adrenaline fading and i would also sort of again um nuggets of hope uh, and hopeful sort of developments that we we happen to see a lot of the firms that we work with um, jennifer as i mentioned they are definitely not as esg aware as earth, as earth capital would be right so some of them are sort of in the early innings of their esg journeys and it's it's not as if their esg ambition is restricted just to having you know sort of pure benchmark median risk control they do want to take not all of them not all of them of course but a large portion of of the firms we interact with want to explore opportunities like hey what does it mean for us to sign up to the net zero asset manager initiative right what are the requirements of that are we are we even set up can we if we are not, what are some of the foundational steps that we need to do now so that we do get to meet the signatory requirements, say in a year or in two years time, right? Um, a few of our firms, though they are not impact investing firms at all, right? Just straight up regular private equity firms, 
they are also interested in understanding and Richard to your point, can some of their funds um, be part of the IFC operating principles, right? If, because they are seeing their peers, um, there is a bit of positive peer pressure also going on, right? Because uh, some of the larger firms have, have, have signed up to that and sort of are reporting a certain percentage of their assets. So there is a genuine interest um, from private equity firms of all stripes. And these are not firms who necessarily invest in high-risk ESG sectors or industries. Some of them, you know, are investing in industries and sectors that are, you know, sort of low risk, have less, you know, in terms of percentage contribution to global greenhouse gas. They are some of the sectors that are least emitting or least polluting rather than, but even then, even then there is an interest. And on, on top of all of that, all of this is sort of self-driven. Um, and I'm sure, sorry, um, you would have probably seen the framework that ILPA um, released a few weeks ago. Uh, now they have an assessment framework that they are, um, they have sort of built that resource for LPs to evaluate the maturity of, of private equity ESG programs. Um, so that's definitely a, a push in the right direction. And on top of that, um, there is, there have been remarks from the SEC about um, additional reporting requirements for funds that claim to be green or sustainable, right? And that seems to have bipartisan support because even you know, under the previous administration, um, there were comments about that if a fund that is domiciled in the US is claiming to be green or ESG aligned, it's only natural that they are able to substantiate those claims. So I think there would be, we are hoping that there would be some requirements from the SEC very soon. Um, and that will, you know, sort of uh, propel, propel private equity firms to, to enhance their reporting. So the short answer is we don't see um, the, the adrenaline to develop ESG programs and to consistently uh, report fading anytime soon. And I know this sounds self-serving because you know we are set up to help those firms, but that's the that's what we are seeing in the marketplace. Is it, is it not also fair to say that the pandemic is itself um, uh, a product of our environmental mismanagement? I mean, you know, that you know, one one very credible explanation is that this was um, this is a zoonotic uh, uh, event right. where an illness has, has gone over from the animal kingdom into our own. Um, we've known about these pandemics for years in the same way that we've known about climate change. We've just failed to adequately um, manage for those risks. And I think what COVID-19 has demonstrated quite clearly is how fragile our globally interconnected economy is. Um, and I, you know, Mark Carney, um, in a really brilliant um, article in, in The Economist, talked about um, the way our digital and local lives have expanded during the pandemic. I mean, I often say that I, I've spoken to the people in the street in which I live more over the last 18 months than I probably did in the decade before that. Um, my digital life has certainly expanded. This is changing value. It's changing investment values of businesses as well. I don't see that changing. Um, and I actually think um, that COVID-19 could be a catalyst for a genuine build back better strategy where we 
we focus on things that hopefully make the economy and society more resilient. Um, we've seen that um, ESG uh, funds, particularly those that, that are high ESG sort of quality funds, have actually performed really well during the um, sort of um, share price um, tumult of, 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 of the COVID uh, pandemic. Um, uh, and they look well positioned to um, to, to bounce back. So um, I'm I'm I actually think that um, it's it, it's actually brought into the focus the fact that we 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 under um, estimate um, and disregard many of the potential risks that we face, systemic risks, and we need to do something about them: climate change, biodiversity loss other um, societal issues, inequality, which has been exposed brutally during uh, the pandemic. Um, so I think in, in many respects, it, it, it's shone a spotlight onto those um, issues. Um, I, I think we will, it will affect the way people invest. You talked about net zero. Um, I mean, everybody's talking about net zero uh, at present, uh, it seems, um, and, and it's a good thing. But now we need to get serious about what does that actually mean, and you know how do you develop science-based targets that can really evidence properly that you're on a transition to a net-zero outcome. Um, and you know, is it scope one, scope two, and/or scope three? And and we, you know, we, we need to all understand and, and socialize what what the differences mean. And and when companies say they're Yes, we're targeting net zero. You know, we can say, well, yeah. And what scopes are you looking at? And is it your whole value chain? And what's included and what isn't? So, I, I, I think that's personally. I think that's the way we're moving. I think we're moving to much stronger science-based reporting um, because that's the only way I think that that the public will have confidence that businesses are doing what they claim they're doing. Right. Right. That's no, where we. Yeah, that's Correct. where we'll need to develop standards. Right, right. Definitely, you know, COVID has exposed the fault lines. And, you know, so far we haven't even talked about um, the opportunity set of, of just renewable, right? With, with, yeah. with technology maturing and costs coming down. Um, you know, it's just an, a compelling investment opportunity. So there, is, there isn't even any, you know... Uh, like there is no doing good. You don't need a doing good uh, rationale uh, to to invest in that opportunity set. So yes, you know, uh, again, I don't think the it would be a shame if the world were to go back after the lessons that the last what, sixteen months now have taught us, and we see no signs of that. Um, net zero. Like imagine, like when when this started March twenty twenty, how many investment firms were talking about net zero, right? Or were trying to understand. You know, we get questions yeah. about net zero, climate neutral, carbon neutral. There, is this, there are these terms that are sort of being used fungibly. They, they shouldn't, they, they mean slightly different things. So of course there is heightened awareness, um, which is a good thing. And there's also heightened media scrutiny, right? The amount of attention the IPCC report got, it shouldn't be one day of the, one day of the year that should get, but this was mainstream news everywhere, right? Um, so I think the combination of all of this um, scrutiny is a good thing for the marketplace. Um, and now, as Richard said, now that 
net zero has become part of the of the private equity vocabulary. Um, now we have to figure out what does it actually mean so that it doesn't become it doesn't become diluted, and there are standards that that firms are held uh, to. Yeah. So yes. I think after a very interesting kind of 17 months, two years, we're nowhere near the end of this conversation. I think the next next two years are going to be equally as interesting and eye-opening on this topic. And it'll be really, really interesting to see how firms react and continue to adapt. 